This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Regardless of your residency program year, the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Platform developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons is right for you. Free to residents, ROCK is an online learning program that covers 11 subspecialty areas with content that's been authored and curated by some of the leading names in orthopedics. And residents can access content for free at rock.aos.org. Get started today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are now tuned into our Citation Classics episode. Yes, another one, and we are actually bringing back the Shoulder and Elbow Citation Classics. This team is actually going to be headed by Dr. Samuel Fuller, and he will do an introduction and introduce the entire team very shortly, but they crushed this episode. This episode is another classic episode, really going over reverse shoulder arthroplasty, going over some outcomes, have some really great classic articles in this talk. I mean, again, every time I listen to these guys, I learn a lot, and we really hope that you all enjoy this episode. And without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. So hello, everyone. Welcome back to another Citations Classic. This will be the shoulder and elbow episode. Today, we're going to be talking about reverse shoulder arthroplasty and the outcomes related to those. My name's Sam Fuller. I'm one of the interns at the University of Buffalo. With me, I have Alex McFarland, who is a chief resident at Buffalo as well with me. Teja Olasetti, who is a fourth year at Harvard. Matthew Corsi, a third year at Wayne State. And then Jalen Warren, another third-year medical student at Ohio University. Thank you all for doing this with me. I really appreciated working with you, all you guys. If you guys want to say hi now or whenever you present your article, go ahead. Thanks, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get started. So a little bit of background. So the reverse total, sh total shoulder wasn't around forever. Obviously, can't reverse all the joints, but uh, shoulder was one of the ones that we can. And it came about with the difference in these two photos, glenohumeral arthritis. On the left, we have a relatively well-located shoulder, just with some general arthritis, some space narrowing between those. On the right, we can see uh, superior migration of the humeral head, probably likely due to a massive rotator cuff repair or a massive rotator cuff tear that is actually irreparable. And that kind of creates some difficulties with anatomic total shoulder replacement, which was the basis for a reverse. Basically, this wasn't doing well. And so there was a new design that needed to be developed, and, and that was a reverse total shoulder. So basically, taking the ball and socket joint and flipping the ball and the socket around. And you'll see as we go through these articles, these are going to be the most cited articles in reverse total shoulder arthroplasty relating to the outcome. So we'll go through the natural evolution of this as well. Alex, I know you're going into shoulder and elbow. So if you want to talk about that a little bit too and give the listeners kind of a background on that, I'm sure that would be appreciated. Yeah, thanks. So yeah, the first three articles you're going to see and the fifth article as well, I believe, use the the delta three processes. You'll hear a lot of times talking about the the tenets of the ideas that the Grimaud design is a, a French engineer and that then develops into the U.S. with a fourth article developing its own to for the FDA reasons. But you know what you, you'll have it mentioned quite a bit is the medialized center of rotation, and why that's important is really reducing the shear stress that goes around the base plate. Because the big thing you'll see through these articles is the base plate failure. So fixation on the glenoid side hampered the the development of this over the years. It, you know massive rotator cuffs that are irreparable or associated with arthritis aren't a new phenomenon, but the the development, the learning how to actually combat that and developing constrained implant is then met by increasing stresses across that tiny little bone uh, at the glenoid face. So every time we hear medialized center of rotation, and that's basically the idea of bringing that center of rotation between the ball and socket more medial because you have less stress, you have less joint reactive forces there to overcome. However, as you go forward, you also hear lateralized and lateralizing the center of rotation or lateralizing the humerus. The thing to understand here is 
when people and shoulder surgeons refer to lateralization, especially on the center rotation of the glenoid side, by and large, we are talking respective to the Grammont prosthesis. Yes, you're lateralizing, but you're not lateralizing from the native or that patient's original center rotation. You're, you're usually going to stay quite medial to that or, or near to the center. If, if you lateralize enough, you'll, you'll get close to the anatomic center rotation. You can also lateralize along the humerus. They'll talk about tensioning the rotator cuff and whatever rotator cuff is still intact with these patients, like you'll see in the, the fifth article on metalizing and how that neck cut. So you'll see the neck cut go from a very steep, steep uh, one neck cut to 145, 135, where the neck cut then isn't quite so severe. So you don't have the humerus knocking up against the inferior along the scapular neck and causing the big issue that we talk about often, and that's the scapular notching. Great. Yeah. Thank you for that background. So with all that being said, we'll get into our first article. So this is the Grammat Inverted Total Shoulder Arthroplasty Treatment for Glenohumeral Osteoarthritis with Massive Rupture of the Cuff. This is a multi-center study. So this is out of JBJS from 2004, again, going through the natural history. So this is a bit of an older article, but one of the most cited articles for reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. So a little bit of background, the unconstrained total shoulder produced good results when there's an intact rotator cuff, like I mentioned, but when that was not intact or was absent or deficient, the results didn't tend to be as good. So in the 1970s, there was a more constrained prosthesis that was invented with a fixed center of rotation but that had high rates of loosening as well as other mechanical complications. And so the Gramont reverse prosthesis was invented in 1985, and you can see a picture of it right there. That's one of the first iterations of the reverse shoulder implant. So the study designed for this, the initial surgery was between December of 1991 through March of 1999. The patients had shoulder arthritis with a massive rotator cuff tear. Overall, they had 92 cases. They lost six of them to follow up and six of them died. So they examined 80 shoulders and 77 different patients. And their clinical results, they examined using a 100-point constant Murley shoulder scale and range of motion testing. The constant Murley scale, you'll see in a few of these other papers as well, it's a 100-point scale. And you'll see it in the results here that they break it down. But it's a, basically a patient-reported outcome scale. They also examined radiographs with serial x-rays for loosening. And then they also looked at survivorship by examining the need for revision or loosening. The population, they had a mean follow-up of 44 months, anywhere from two years to 97 months. So they had a relatively long follow-up for an early study. Patient age was an average of 73 years almost, ranging from 60 to 86. What I found interesting was the approach. So the approach for the surgery was mainly a superior lateral approach with an anterior deltoid release, which is something that isn't really seen anymore. I haven't seen any of them done not through a deltopec approach, which only 19% of these were done, as well as another one with a transacromial approach and a mixed approach in three of these as well. They cemented 38 of them and uncemented for 42 of them. So here's a, the results slide that they had a little bit busy. First, we'll focus on table two in the middle there. So what we're looking at, this is the constant Murley score. You can see the different breakdown of the points. So there's pain, activity, mobility, or range of motion, and then strength, and then the overall score on the bottom. And you can see on the left column is the preoperative score. So the range of motion and all the other tests that they did prior to surgery. And then they also have their follow-up post-surgery. And you can see all of these were significantly improved after surgery. If you go down to the next table three, this is a full range of motion kind of scale that they went to with active forward flexion, then passive forward elevation, active external rotation, passive external rotation, active external rotation with abduction, as well as passive external rotation with abduction and then internal rotation. You can see the top row is again, preoperative with the post-operative being below it. And you can see a decent amount of these were also significant. So improvement in the range of motion following the surgery as well. And then the far, you can see this is a Kaplan-Meier survivorship curve. The topmost one is looking at survivorship in terms of whether or not a revision needed to be performed. So you can see really good that these mainly did not need to be revised. The next one down you can see is in terms of a revision or failure of one of the components. And once we get a little bit farther out, this seems like it fails more quickly than we would like. 
And then the last one is with loosening. And so pretty similar to failure of one of the components as well. So overall, these have very good patient reported outcome measure scores, and then also relatively good scores early on. But once it gets a little bit farther out, these tend to start loosening and having some issues. So conclusions that they drew from this paper was that the Terry's minor is necessary for a good constant score for their patients. And it actually didn't correlate with the status of whether the subscap was repaired or not, or the actual positioning of the implant. They recommended the use of cemented humeral component and then a lateralized plastic insert, kind of what Alex was talking about, to restore that appropriate tension to the deltoid, because you don't want to have a lax deltoid. That's obviously going to cause issues. And then the high probability of failure with the inverted prosthesis once it got out to about seven years or so. But again, this was the first time that this implant was used. So this was the, obviously since then we have improved our implants and probably taken a lot of the information from studies like this and other ones about what we needed to do differently. Their ultimate conclusion from this paper was that it should be reserved for patients who have failed to respond to conservative therapy, which is pretty much basic to any kind of surgery. You don't want to just go jumping to surgery if you can treat it non-operatively first. But then they also say you also need adequate bone support for firm anchorage of the glenoid component, which makes sense as well. Obviously, you need something to anchor those screws into as well. So overall, this was one of the first studies looking at the inverted or reverse implant and showed pretty good outcomes. And obviously, we know from where we are now that this is something that works out being very to be a very good implant. So if I could mention something too here is to, to notice that the, the big thing here is the rotation that doesn't get restored in these patients. Part of what they tried to do here was to do that lateralized humeral offset, but you get a, a non-significant result, and especially internal rotation, but external rotation at the side. And you know, then as well as up to 90 degrees of, of abduction, you, know, you see that internal rotation, that, that final column from four to 4.8, that's just randomness, right? In 0.8 degrees doesn't matter too much, but that what hinders the, the reverse, at least early on and, and even to today. Yeah, definitely. And I appreciate you pointing that out. That's definitely something worth mentioning. All right. So we'll move on to our next article, which is uh, also from JVGS. This one a little bit later from 2007. So we'll have next person talk about this one. Yep. Thanks, Sam. Yep. As said before, JVGS 2007 titled Reverse Total Shoulder Arthroplasty a review of the results according to etiology published by Wall and colleagues. Continuing on, just a little background behind this. As we previously stated, in 1983, Nier et al. described rotator cuff arthropathy as we described previously. This was glenohumeral joint changes and humeral head collapse secondary to rotator cuff attrition. Then, as we pointed out, Gramat et al. were the first to report on reverse shoulder prosthesis utilizing a two-thirds sphere, which medialized the position center of rotation near the native glenoid. During this time, reverse shoulder arthroplasty had been utilized to treat a number of complex conditions such as revision arthroplasty, tumor resection, and rheumatoid arthritis. But really, at at this time, there was lack in literature looking at results based off this prosthesis. The largest series of reverse shoulder was roughly 80 patients with rotator cuff arthropathy. And at this time, there was no study looking at results based on etiology. So as a result, the authors of this paper decided to determine whether short-term results of a rear shoulder arthroplasty are affected by etiology. So looking at the study design and how they set the study up, this was a retrospective study performed between May 1995 and June 2003, included 240 consecutive rear shoulder arthroplasties. These were performed by one of two surgeons utilizing two different prosthesis types. The authors also pointed out that there are many indications for reverse shoulder arthroplasty, to name a couple, included massive rotator cuff with chronic loss of elevation and rotator cuff arthropathy with failed physiotherapy. It's also important to note that the authors identified this rotator cuff compromise as defined as irreparable tear of greater than two tendons or grade three, four fatty infiltration of the infra or subscap on pre-op CT. The authors also pointed that severe posterior or superior glenobomas was an indication for reverse in their study. The patients were then examined pre and postoperatively by someone other than the acting surgeon, and then pre and postoperative r- range of motion and constant scores were collected. They also 
utilizes subjective results, looking at how satisfied the patients were with the outcomes of their surgery, ranging from very satisfied to uncertain and disappointed. The authors also noted that they took pre-op CTs to evaluate the quality of the rotator cuff as well as the glenoid bone stock, and then all of the operative plans were similar in nature. The authors also outlined a data analysis plans in which they used ANOVA study to compare functional scores and range of motion in various etiological groups, as well as chi-squared analysis for satisfaction and complication rates between the groups. So looking at the population, so the authors noted that there is no specific age limit, but the average age is around 72.7 with a range of 23 to 86 years old. It included 240 prosthesis implanted in a total of 232 patients. Eight patients had a bilateral procedure. In terms of sex, females were dominated in 184 of the patients, and then as well as shoulders, the right shoulder was more common in 173. So looking over at to the right on table one, the authors outlined the etiology for reverse total shoulder, and we can see that 30.8% of that 240 were from rotator cuff arthropathy, followed by revision arthroplasty at 22.5. It's also important to note that the authors utilized the Hamada stage system to grade preoperative radiographs to differentiate between rotator cuff arthropathy from massive rotator cuff without arthritis, um, shown in figure one. So it's a, they described stage one as minimal radiographic changes, as shown on the right. Stage two shows narrowing of the subacrobial space, less than five millimeters. Stage three shows the erosion and acetabulization of the chromium secondary to superior migration of the humeral head. Stage four comes into glenohumeral arthritis, and they break it into 4A and 4B, 4A being without acetabulization, and then 4B with acetabulization, and then stage five, humeral head osteonecrosis. So stages one, two, and three were considered massive rotator cuff without arthritis, and then stages 4A, 4B, and five were considered rotator cuff arthropathy. So continuing on to our results section. So as we said before, 232 patients, they excluded five from the analysis, two of them being tumor resection, three, two from acute fracture, and one for treated with rheumatoid arthritis. So they brought it down to 227 patients. Of those 227, 22 died before the minimum follow-up, eight had removal or revision of the prostheses, 11 other patients were lost to follow-up. So this left the authors with 191 shoulders and 186 patients. You can see that the average follow-up was about 39.9 months, and the average age was 75.3. Overall, the average constant scores improved from 22.8 to 59.7 at follow-up time, and these constant scores improved significantly across all domains, as shown to the right in Table 3. The authors also showed that active elevation increased overall from 86 to 137 degrees, as well as internal rotation from L5 to L4 but there was no significant change on external rotation. And so displayed in table three and table four, we can see the breakdown of the different etiologies, duration of follow-up and the constant score. So this is the same score that Sam talked about in the previous article, breaking it up into the four domains, pain, activity, mobility, and strength. So coming on to results continued. So we can see that there was substantial clinical and functional improvements was seen in all etiology groups, but primary rotator cuff arthropathy, primary osteoarthritis with rotator cuff tear, and massive rotator cuff tear without osteoarthritis had greater outcomes than those with post-traumatic arthritis and revision arthroplasty. It's also interesting that in terms of those three groups, they did not significantly differ in post-op constant scores, range of motion, or subjective ratings. It's also interesting that this, the authors pointed out that post-op constant scores significantly related to subjective ratings in all the etiologies except for massive rotator cuff, something that was a little bit different than the other ones. So the authors also noted that they also reported on subjective outcomes. So of the 186 patients, 173 were considered satisfied or very satisfied, 11 were uncertain, and then two were disappointed. The authors also pointed out some complications of the, the procedures most commonly being dislocation with 15 patients as well as infection with eight in among the 199 shoulders that were followed for two years or revised prior to the two-year minimum follow-up. Just some limitations of the study that were brought about was the retrospective nature design. There was really no direct comparison between reverse shoulder and other treatment options. 
There is also a selection bias by high volume experienced surgeons, which may not reflect the results from less experienced surgeons about the time. And also another limitation was this minimum duration of follow-up was short, only being 24 months. So we really didn't look at it longitudinally multiple years down the road. But overall, this was the largest reported series of patients who had managed with reverse total shoulder to date. But the authors demonstrated that reverse total shoulder can be used for a number of complex shoulder problems other than patients with rotator cuff arthropathy, but for those with deficiencies in soft tissues or glenobone stock. Another high key point that they brought about was this post-traumatic arthritis and revision arthritis had less improvement and increased complication rates compared to other etiologies. Another just quick tidbit about what, when they in their discussion section, they were warned about this advanced pay, age of the patients and short duration of follow-up around the time of publishing uh, noted it should be used judiciously. So sets up further for research in the future. And that concludes for this article. Yeah. So I think that's perfect. That was great. So what you mentioned again in the beginning was that the only study that talked about this prior was the study with 80 patients. So that was actually the first article that we presented. So this article is building on it, taking a larger study and looking at it as well. And then it's also, like you mentioned, expanding some of the indications for using this, building in a natural course. We have this small study initially, which is showing promise, and then this study, which is showing promise with the larger sample size and increased indications for its usage. So we'll see what we have next coming up here, but building this natural history and looks like these are decent results that we're getting as well. So the next study we have is the NEAR Award from 2005. All right. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Tasia again from a fourth year student at HMS. And I'll be presenting on Dr. Boylud's results regarding the Grammont reverse shoulder prosthesis, specifically in three indications, cuff tear arthritis, fracture, and revision arthroplasty. And it's a nice segue from the prior Walsh paper, the JBJS paper, and you'll see similar results as well that kind of further support the evidence for this uh, system. So for some background, again, like we mentioned before, unconstrained shoulder prosthesis, a lot of evidence shows it's less effective in cases when there's a damaged glenohumeral joint and a deficient cuff. And in these specific circumstances, the shoulder, it lacks the force to counteract the deltoid upward pull. So you usually see improper humerus ascension and limited limb elevation. And so the authors notes three specific indications that they were interested in that typically have these failures, arthritis with massive cuff tears, fractures that really distort the proximal humerus, the anatomy, and then revision cases where typically patients also have a deficient cup and have a prior arthroplasty failure. So the conventional approach tend to be an unconstrained hemiarthroplasty, and it goes along with NEAR's limited goals where it provides pain relief, but you still have restricted active elevation. And that also biomechanically, there's a fixed fulcrum and that imposes stress on the prosthesis and glenoid bo bone interface. And that leads to loosening over time. So the Grammont solution, the specific design is to have a large glenoid component with a 155 degree inclination humeral cup. And the thought process is that it restores mobility with the stable center rotation. And then it's, it's semi-constrained design uh, allows it to be congruent with the joint services and minimizes the torque. And by lowering the humerus, you're placing the deltoid under tension. And that, again, provides a more stable and biomechanically stronger fulcrum. So this paper looks into midterm results of this Grammont solution prosthesis and divides it into three specific patient groups, so cuff tear arthritis, a fracture sequelae, and revision cases. And so the study design, they looked at patients between 1997 and 2002 and did about 50 of these shoulder replacements. And they were able to get follow-up from 45 of them. Four, five were excluded due to issues not related to the surgery. So again, they looked at the three specific treatment groups that I mentioned, and the implant system was a deltoid number three reverse shoulder prosthesis from Depew. And the operative technique they used, they described they initially started with the superior transdeltoid approach that Alex mentioned earlier, but they, after four patients, they switched to the uh, traditional deltoid pectoral approach out of concern that they were possibly damaging the deltoid muscle, which is the sole mo motor for the prosthesis. 
and also to allow for greater access to the humeral diaphysis, especially in the revision and more complex cases. And they typically use cement. Uh, they estimated the bo humeral bone loss intraoperatively and used cement as needed to maintain stability. And in terms of outcomes, the clinical outcomes, they looked at the constant score, range of motion, the ASE score, and uh, patient satisfaction. And radiographically, they looked at both preoperative CTs and postoperative radiographs. The preop CTs were used to more grade the cuff status uh, of the patients using the Hamada classification. And then also you look at the glenoid bone stock. And then post-op was looked at notching and loosening of the components. And so the population, again, there are uh, 45 patients and have a minimum follow-up of two years. So the mean follow-up was about 40 months. And dividing in between the treatment groups, primarily the patients were composed of the cuff tear arthropathy and they were much older compared to the other two groups with a mean age of 77. And primarily women, about 90% of them. And uh, their pathology was on the dominant side. And looking at their cup uh, status, about 30% of them had a grade 3, which is described as a humeral head migration and acetabulization. And then about half of them were grade 4, which also has glenal humeral joint narrowing. And then when we look at the fracture group, only about five patients, but again, uh, similar demographics, mainly women. And the fracture classification was the Boilu classification. So about three patients with a type four fracture, which is characterized as severe malunion or non-union of the tuberosities. And then uh, there was a type three fracture where the surgical neck non-union and then one type one fracture where it was valgus impacted. And then going to the revision cases, 19 patients and mostly younger patients with a mean age of 67. Again, primarily women and about half of them were on the dominant side. And specifically, most of them were failed total shoulder arthroplasties for a fracture, 16 of them. And then there were two failed hemis and one failed arthrodesis. And one last tidbit to note is that about Four patients had actually had a two-stage revision when they were converted to a reverse because of a concurrent deep infection they had. So looking at results, the authors report a complication rate about of about 24% and uh, primarily composed in the revision group, a nine of them in the revision. They're described below in the table. The authors had to do a reoperation in a four cases, uh, mainly for hematoma and a shoulder dislocation where they exchanged uh, the poly. And about six of these patients had to have further revisions. And most of them were actually from the revision group. So it goes along with our thinking of the main risk factor for revisions is a prior or infections and further surgery is a prior surgery. So about one patient had an intra-op glenoid fracture while they were reaming the glenoid. And so that was found on a post-op radiograph where the glenoid component was malpositioned. They brought, brought it back and revised it. And the patient still had a poor result with persistent shoulder pain up to this day and only about an elevation to 40 degrees. And another patient had a deep infection around the one-year mark, which was revised with uh, resection and change of the prosthesis. And then another patient had aseptic humeral loosening, again, around the one-year mark, which again had to be revised. And then there was one perioperative periprosthetic fracture and then one late traumatic fracture related to a, a car accident that also had to be revised. So looking at the satisfaction, patients who were treated with the reverse due to cuff tear arthropathy had a high satisfaction rate, about 95%, which was the highest compared to the other two groups. The fracture sequelae group had about 60% satisfaction rate. And when you look at the range of motion in the table, all the groups showed improvement in their elevation, but none of the groups showed any changes in their external rotation. And the study further goes into their cuff, tear, uh, cuff status and concluded that it was largely influenced by the status of their teres minor, which goes along again with the prior studies. But nonetheless, they showed improvement in internal rotation. And in terms of the pain outcomes, they varied based on the pathology. Uh, again, people with a cuff tear arthropathy did really well and had minimal pain, but patients who were who were treated with from revisions tend to have poor outcomes or mixed outcomes. Looking at the post-op radiographs, the authors report that 
there was loosening radio loosen lines in about 45% of the glenoid components and then 60% of the humeral components. And they found notching around 68% of the patients. And heterotrophic ossification was seen about in about 45 of uh, these patients. And they were often related, uh, again, with scapular notching. So the conclusion of these studies, similar to Dr. Walsh's paper, the CTA group showed much better outcomes in pain, range of motion, and patient-reported outcome measures. The only no difference was in external rotation and was based on the status of their teres minor. And the other two groups, the fractured sequelae group and the revision group, had less predictable outcomes and a higher complication rate and further revisions as well. The main strengths of this paper, again, is it's the first study to really look at the semi-constrained delta system and actually separate it based on pathology. There were prior studies that looked into one specific uh, pathology, but it was the first to actually compare all three of these pathologies. And there was, a, again, a minimum loss to follow up. They were able to get results from 45 of the 50, and they were able to, again, do an excellent radiograph analysis preoperatively of the cuff and then post-op of the prosthesis. How are the limitations? Again, it's a two-year minimum outcomes paper, so it doesn't really report on the long-term outcomes of these prostheses. And then the patient population, again, was primarily women, right, which was about like 80 and 90%. And if you remember from the sample size, the sample size for the fracture patients was only about five compared to 21 in the CTA and 19 in the revision group. Obviously not equal in terms of their sample size, which could have affected the results and interpretation as well. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. If you're an orthopedic resident, it's time to start building the foundation to be prepared for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leaders in the field to bring you the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program. Rock is an all-in-one online learning platform covering 11 subspecialties. You can access the content for free at rock.aaos.org. This platform delivers a comprehensive, structured, standardized curriculum and even includes self-assessment quizzes and performance analytics. And remember, residents never pay to access Rock content. Get started today at rock.aaos.org. Awesome. Yeah, great summary of that article as well. Unless anyone has anything else to say, we'll jump into the next one, which is from JBJS as well with Dr. Frankel. Yep. My name's Alex. I'm uh, PGY5, the University of Buffalo, and going into Shoulder and Elbow Fellowship next year. So reviewing the reverse role of prosthesis for glenohumeral arthritis associated with severe rotator cuff deficiency. So a little bit of background on this study. So previous European studies, including the ones we reviewed, demonstrated good results using reverse role arthroplasty for patients with massive or irreparable rotator cuffs or the end stage of it being the rotator cuff arthropathy with two of these ones we reviewed being the the delta three prosthesis developed by Gramat, and then the other one being the striker equalis so this is a 2005 study by mark frankel and colleagues at the florida orthopedic institute using the rsp or reverse shoulder prosthesis in the u.s a little bit of background on that is that in the u.s you'll, you'll see we have a lot of issues with FDA approval and all of that. And you can't necessarily just take anything you want and put it in a patient. Using the Delta-3 in the United States was basically not approved by the FDA. And there's actually a good video of Frankel talking about it on ViewMedi. If anybody listening wants to go watch, talking about how you went about it and basically had to make their own custom implant and prescribe that custom implant for the patients. He himself, too, went over and basically trained with these guys, with Giles Walsh and Pascal Boileau, the two articles that we reviewed earlier. However, the initial implant design, is, as you saw in some of the earlier studies, were hampered by you know a lack of, of rotational improvement, which, again, still today is a little bit of an issue, as well as basically a complication or a radiographic finding, depending on how you talk about it, is, is that scapular notching. A little bit of grade one, grade two, you're not, you're getting worried, but you're not seeing anything. But the more severe stuff certainly concerns you for loosening after it gets past that inferior most screws. A lot of that was thought to, to possibly come from that, that very severe neck cut. So the idea behind this, and it's described in the background of this, is 
a few things to improve this. So to tension the rotator cuff muscles that are still present, if present, including the subscapularis, infraspinatus, and the teres, as well as the deltoid. And this phenomenon that's still debated is the deltoid wrapping, whether or not it actually occurs the further you lateralize, is to come back on that center of rotation. So going from a very Grammont medialized point to something more close to a native center of rotation, but still remaining medialized to that center of rotation, which if you look at the article, if you have it in front of it, they show a pretty good representation of that in figures 4A through C. Then a base plate monoblock design, so that central screw is actually unitized to the actual implant itself in an idea of improving that fixation. Because again, they're coming away from the things that made the Grammont succeed, so you have to get more robust glenoid fixation. And then going to a less horizontal net cut from 155 to 145 degrees. So what that effectively does is it brings the humerus back up a little bit so you don't see that severe contour distortion of the shoulder. It offsets the humerus a little bit lateral so the deltoid can wrap around it as well as tension those rotator cuff muscles. But the trade-off here, and it's always a balance of forces here, is to, you're not putting that severe horizontal cut right under the scapular neck. Now you're not as constrained as the remote. So you're worrying about some instability of the prosthesis. Moving on to the methods here. So this was uh, 60 patients in a consecutive series that were indicated by the first author for a reverse shoulder arthroplasty. This is between December of 98 and uh, September of 2000. All of these patients had either glenohumeral arthritis with rotator cuff insufficiency or rotator cuff arthropathy. So we talked about the Hamada stages as well as the Cibro classification earlier, but the idea of either it's a rotator cuff that's failed or, or a rotator cuff that's failed and now caused arthritis in a very specific pattern due to the pistoning or the, of that humeral head more superior. They made sure to indicate this only for patients with at least 25 millimeters glenoid bone between the glenoid face and the medial border of the scapula, which they measured on CT. And the idea behind that is the central screw, the smallest being 25 millimeters. So you don't want that to puncture out and be sticking out into the subscapularis fossa and irritating there. Exclusions are, are pretty standard, active infection, axillary nerve palsy, as we talked about, the deltoid is the now only motor unit actually keeping this implant not only stable, but moving it. Insufficient glenoid bone stock, as I had mentioned, non-functioning deltoid for any particular reason other than axillary nerve palsy and a very high level of activity, which still gets mentioned to this day. The big overhead function, if you want to go back to serve an overhand, serves in tennis or, or working above your head, it, it may not be the right implant for this patient. What they looked at for scores were ASES scores, their uh, vast pain and function scores. Overall satisfaction, as was used in, in the prior studies, basically a, a Likert scale of yes or no and uh, preoperative and postoperative range of motion. So the patient population was uh, mean age of 71 with quite a large range. So between the ages of 34 to 86, being that that mean is closer to the high range, there was only a few patients below the age of 60. There was five patients below the age of 60. One of these patients, as you can see, was 34 years of age. That patient, we'll go into the diagnoses here a little later, but had cuff tear arthropathy with general head collapse as well as lupus, which was the indication for here. 11 of these patients had uh, rotator cuff arthropathy with humeral head collapse. 17 of them had rotator cuff arthropathy without humeral head collapse. 23 of them had some form of failed rotator cuff repair. Seven of them had rotator cuff tear with pseudoparesis, so basically the, that hornblower sign, the inability to activate or forward elevate without any actual nerve injury and post-traumatic arthritis and RA1, respectively. They did track uh, internal external range of motion for all patients, but unfortunately in this, we had the preoperative range of motion in rotation at the side available in 16 in the patients. So that will be a limitation that we talk about a little bit later. Moving on. So in their results, what we see are Again, that 16 of 60 down the bottom only had the, the preoperative external rotation measurements, but that overall in those 16 improved from 
12, sorry, for all the patients that the adduction that, sorry, for the 16 patients, the external rotation measurements improved from 12 to 41 degrees uh, in adduction and a mean external rotation for all the patients was 35 degrees. So from a range of five degrees to 60, so a, a pretty decent range there. 41 or of the patients or 68% of them rated their outcome as excellent. 16 patients or 27% rated that as satisfied and 5% or, or three of the patients. They did note that patients who previously had surgery or had b- better ASES scores for pain function and I'm sorry, patients who had previously had surgery had better ASES scores for flying in the face of, of the earlier studies of the prior surgeries, having a revision surgeries, having less satisfaction, which is probably a difference in selection being that you could have those patients who are just dissatisfied with the overall course of it or the patients who are, hey, I was told there was nothing for this. This is awesome. I'm just happy with getting a base hit here. Complications, they had 10 patients with 13 complications. One patient had both scapular and acromion fractures, which I don't really know at, at, at this point how how identifiable acromion fractures were, but it was reported in other studies too. Of, they didn't really think this was related to the implant itself, but it, especially when you're talking about little ladies with osteopenia or distalizing this implant very far, you can put a lot of stress through the deltoid onto the acromion. So this sort of gets identified later on with patients. So one of these fractures, the guy who had the scapular and acromial fractures was treated not operatively. And another patient had an acromial fracture that was treated with ORIF and, and both rated their outcomes as excellent. One patient did have glenoid failure and seven patients with eight failed devices at a mean of 21.4 months, two of which were converted to hemiarthroplasty. This is something that they mentioned in their conclusions as well, is that the uh, that 21 months mean or two years is the fatigue point of this implant that if there's no osseous ingrowth, they noticed in, in all these patients that there's no osseous ingrowth at this point is all fibrous. The screws can only hold on for so long as we often see in these patients, in many orthopedic patient that is. Radiographic outcomes, three patients had glenoid radiolucent lines. The one patient that did have the glenoid base failure was among them. And there was no evidence of scapular notching. So again, as I had alluded to earlier, was that change from the 155 to the 145 or going from a more horizontal to a more less horizontal or more vertical cut pulls that uh, humerus away, especially in adduction, pulls it away from the, the scapular neck. And yeah, so for the patients who also were converted, who were had a failure and not revised to hemiarthroplasty instead revised to the RSP, one patient then again failed, so had a re-revision and all of them also rated theirs as as excellent outcomes. So in conclusion, they saw that big takeaways from this, mostly an implant change, but also just more support for the reverse as we go forward in the early 2000s series is no scapular notching was seen. There was potential improvements in external rotations, but that had to be more put by the wayside with the missing data here. And they identified the two-year measure sort of the stress limit of the implant. So following these patients out, at least beyond two years is important to make sure that implant is actually ingrown and successful treatment of six, five RSA or six failed reverse shoulders in five patients. So using it as a, even a revision bailout of itself can yield good outcomes. Awesome. Thank you for that. Great uh, recap of that article, Alex. We'll move on to our last article now. So this is a uh, relatively newer one compared to the other ones. And this will be the last one that we talk about uh, as one of the highest cited articles. Thank you. Appreciate it. Elliot, everyone, I'm Jalen, third year medical student at Ohio University. Article I looked at was also published in JSES in 2013 titled Reverse Total Shoulder Arthroplasty for Massive Irreparable Rotator Cuff Tears in Patients Younger Than 65 Years Old. Results after 5 to 15 years by Eugene and all. So a little bit of background, as we previously stated, uh, European studies they were looking at previous RSA prosthesis studies, the first being in 2006, looking at midterm results of RSAs used in patients, and they showed that it was early loosening of the prosthesis around three to five, around the three-year mark, and also around the six-year mark. And so they concluded that it should be exclusively used in patients greater than 70 because it wouldn't provide significant results for the long term for younger patients. 
And then also a study in 2011 that looked at complication rates and functional scores and survivorships for patients who ended up RSA, the set, looking at their seven-year mark and nine-year mark, which showed they had lower relative constant Murley scores compared to patients with less than five years of follow-up, suggesting that the prosthesis deteriorated over time. And again, suggesting it shouldn't be used that younger population, so it excuse to be used in the older population. So at this time, when this study was first released, there was really no true current long-term clinical outcome studies done in younger populations to show the outcomes. Uh, so the purpose of this study was to evaluate the mid to long-term clinical and radiologic results, but RSA prosthesis uh, performed in patients younger than 65 years old with massive irreparable rotator cuff tears with or without arthritis. So taking a look at the study design, the study is out of Switzerland. It was the same institution with patients from 1997 to 2006. Uh, there were a number of RSA indications that are greater than stage two of the Catalier classification. We include in the study, patients had to have at least five years of clinical follow-up. Patients with about five years or more were excluded. Within the traditional pre- and post-op clinical assessments and functional scores, 40 shoulders were included. Now, they also looked at using the constant early outcome score to see the change over time with follow-up. Also included the subjective shoulder value, as well as using the homotic classification that we've been talking about throughout this presentation to grade the rotator cuff tears. And in terms of data analysis, they used traditional T-test, the Crystal Wallace test, and the Kaplan-Meier versus viable ship for these patients who had these prosthesis. So in terms of population, it started with 46 total shoulders and 41 patients. So 24 were men, 17 were women. Mean age was 60. We had a range from 46 to 64, but as you can see, the median age was closer to the higher end near that elderly population. 36 out of 40 involved the dominant shoulder. Five patients ultimately had bilateral shoulders that were included in this study. And then, as I stated earlier, patients with less than five-year follow-up were not included. So ultimately, five patients were dropped. We had a mean follow-up of 93 months in this study. And then again, using the Hamada classification, 21 shoulders demonstrated stage one to stage three. Amada classification scores, uh, as you can see on the right, what those parameters looked like. And then 19 shoulders were stage four, stage five. And out of 40 shoulders that were included in the study, 23 had underwent a previous surgery. And then in terms of results, again, we included, they included 40 shoulders in the study. They wanted to look at the relative constant score. And they saw that the relative constant score, including pain, strength, and the other parameters that go into it, increased from 34 to 74 in both groups. They initially divided the groups into group A shoulders with no previous surgeries and then group B shoulders with previous surgeries as you can see in the table, the bar graph in the top right hand corner. They also looked at active flexion, active aid reduction, in which both had significant increases pre and post-op. What's also noteworthy here is that patients who had previous operations still had significant increases in range of motion and pain, strength, and their subjective and constant scores compared to previous studies, which can continue to suggest that patients who had previous surgeries wouldn't do as well as well to compare to patients who had no previous surgeries on their shoulder. So continue to look at the results. It showed no significant deterioration over the time span when, we, when they expanded out to five, seven, and nine years. No significant deterioration in the constant score or the subjective shoulder volume. And then also no significant changes in their range of motion. In terms of infrascapular neck notching, this was seen in 56 of the patients. And ultimately, the patients who did not develop any notching continued to have and provide uh, better outcome scores. Then looking at the survivorship of the five-year mark, it was at 88%. At the 10-year mark, it was at 76%. Uh, the deaths that occurred in the study were not, none of them were due to any complications from the prosthesis. And when looking at complications, 15 out of 40 occurred, six were failures that resulted in the removal of the prosthesis, three were due to infection that led to prosthesis removal, and then three were also converted to hemis due to glenoid component loosening. There were also two postoperative nerve palsies that both recovered without any operative management. Conclusions for this study, they gathered based off their data that the use the RSA in this population being population younger than 64 actually provided great long-term results through 10 years. It provided significant improved overall function in patient's action that was previously not seen 
in the literature. It also discussed, it also provided data showing that previous surgery status did not affect both the complication rate nor the outcomes of their the patient's subjective and uh, cost and scores or their prosthesis. One thing that they did highlight across this, the conclusion discussion of this paper was that uh, risk versus benefit must really be weighed and had a long talk with the patient due to the high complication rate that was seen with RSAs in this younger population. But fortunately, the most common complication was dislocation. So it didn't require too many reoperations or surgical interventions in this specific study. In terms of limitations, again, this paper was out of Switzerland. It was a very small sample size, only having 40 shoulders, 35 patients total. And also within this study, they had varying pro- prosthesis types, one being the PUI system, the PUI Delta three system that we talked about and other being is everyone system. And the last a couple of more limitations being that this was a single center out of Switzerland, as so I stated, and then also there was no direct comparison to other treatment options, looking at the long-term follow-up for these patients uh, in the younger population. All right, perfect. Thank you for that recap of that article as well. That concludes our episode of the Citation Classics for the Reverse Total Shoulder Arthroplasty Outcomes. Thank you all for listening. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, everyone. Was I lying? Did I not say that they crushed this episode? Did I not say that I learned a lot? Are you not entertained? <laughs> for those of you that get, get that reference. But no, no, thank you all for listening to yet uh, another episode of the Nail the Dortho podcast. Again, they did a great job um, going over all these classic articles for shoulder and elbow. We hope that you all enjoyed it. We hope that you all are sharing this with at least one friend. Uh, let us all learn something together. Uh, let's help educate each other. And without further ado, we'll see you all next time. Material discussed is meant to be for general information purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Optional riders are available for an additional premium. Some policy benefits and features are not available to all occupations. Berkshire Life Insurance Company of America is a wholly owned stock subsidiary of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America. This material contains the current opinions of the presenters, but not necessarily those of the Guardian or its subsidiaries, and such opinions are subject to change without notice. ASPS, Enhanced for Your Practice Podcast, and J-Row are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS, Guardian, or Physician Financial Services, and opinions stated are their own. Lawrence Keller is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Services, LLC, 355 Lexington Avenue, 9th floor, New York, New York, 1001-6603, phone number 212-541-8800. Securities products and advisory services are offered through PAS, phone number 1-516-677-6200. Financial representative, The Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Physician Financial Services is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. AR Life Editors, AR Insurance License Number 1057229CA, Insurance License Number 0C37340. PAS is a member of FINRA and SIPC. Forbes Best In-State Top Financial Security Professional Award is not issued or endorsed by Guardian or subsidiaries. It is based on criteria developed and obtained by Shock Research LLC. No compensation was provided in connection with obtaining this rating. However, advisors may choose to pay Forbes and show for its usage rights of the ranking logo. Past performance is not an indication of future results. 2023-165339. Expiration 11-22-2025.